This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Nobody pushing stuff here. Plug the radio in. everyone. Once again, it's time for Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christi, the weekly program that helps Christians to become thinkers and thinkers to become Christians. This is the program that presents the historical, archaeological, and scholarly evidences for the historic Christian faith based on the documents of the Old and New Testaments. And I am your host this week, uh, Kirk Hastings. Our regular uh, host, Keith Kendricks, is on vacation this week. But we have a couple of guest stars with us this week that regular listeners of this show will probably uh, be familiar with. We have Kevin Harold. Hello, Kirk. Hello. And Jen Quinn. Hello. From Stockton. Yes. And are you, you're you with the Ratio Christi group there, right? Yes, I'm a Stockton graduate, but I still help out with uh, Ratio Christi, and I'm studying, going to start studying for my master's through Biola in January. Okay, so we have a really interesting discussion today that we're going to have between the three of us. We hope you'll uh, stick with us for the whole hour for that. And uh, before we get started, though, let me mention a couple of things. Uh, if you'd like to listen to podcasts of our previous programs, they're available on our website, which is www.evidencethenumber4faith.com. Uh, and they are also on ratiochristi.org, and you can listen to them on iTunes. And if you'd like to ask us a question, you can email us at email at evidencethenumber4faith.com. And we have a Facebook page if you'd like to check that out and send some comments in. So uh, we're going to start off with our quote of the week. I have a quote here from Bishop Fulton J. Sheen, which some of you older people may remember. He used to have a TV show back in the 50s and 60s. And he said, quote, Wrong is wrong, even if everybody is wrong. And right is right, even if nobody is right. Hmm. Interesting little quote, and it kind of ties in with our topic. This week, we are going to focus on the problem of evil this week. We've done a couple of podcasts in the past on this, but we're going to uh, explore that topic again and maybe go in some different directions with it. So we're going to, we have a bunch of questions here that we've come up with, which we're going to pose these questions, and then we're going to discuss the answers. And the basic question here that we're going to be talking about today, I guess if you could sum it all up, is the what some people would call a logical conundrum. If God exists and God is good and God is all-powerful, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? That's a good question, Kurt. Why don't you, what would you say? Well, uh, I've actually written a couple of little essays myself on this in the past. It's a uh, sticky question. It's been around for a long time, of course. People in each generation probably have this same question, and we're going to pose some possible answers here from uh, reading the Bible and what the Bible has to say about this topic. I guess we could, uh, in trying to answer this, this real general basic question here, uh, I'm going to give a short answer and a long answer. <laughs> hmm. 
Why is there evil and suffering in the world if God exists and he is good and he's all-powerful? The short answer, human free will. <laughs> the long answer, we can go into a little more detail about that. Uh, we could say that God gave us free will when he created uh, human beings, and those people have chosen, they choose whether to live under his perfect jurisdiction or to disobey what he tells them to do. Adam and Eve, basically, uh, their free choice uh, brought sin and evil into the world. They decided to disobey what God told them to do, and that really started the ball rolling. Uh, the problem here is that some people say, well, God could have created us as robots, and he could just tell us what to do, and we would do it, and then we wouldn't have a problem with evil and all this other junk in the world. Why didn't he do that? Well, apparently... God felt that free will was an important aspect. Of course, God himself has free will. He, he is a conscious individual who makes choices, and the Bible says that we are created in God's image. Therefore, we have some of his characteristics, and free will is one of them. The problem is, if you create a being with free will so that he will freely choose to do right, which is what you hope he will do, he also has the possibility of choosing to do wrong, and therein lies the problem. So let's look at a couple of different aspects, look at this from a couple different directions. Some people say, okay, if you eliminate God's omnipotence, if he's not omnipotent, that would mean he knows about evil and wants to intervene and to stop it, but it's beyond his power to do so. There are some people who believe that. There's, uh, I'm trying to think of his uh, complete name, Rabbi Kushner, who wrote the book uh, Why Bad Things yes. Happen to Good People. I can't think of his first name I at the moment. Either. He wrote a book on that subject, and he came basically to the conclusion that God is good, but he's not all-powerful. Therefore, he can't stop evil. So he has the power to cast the very universe into space, to be the master of string theory and all that but he is not able to effect change that he wants. That's the way Rabbi Kushner sees it. Okay, another way of looking at it would be, well, what if God is not omniscient? What if he doesn't know everything? Maybe he's ignorant of the problem here, and he could stop it, but he just doesn't know about it or doesn't care about it. It's another way of looking at it. But according to the Bible, which traditional Christians believe God has all of these things. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is perfectly good. And yet there is still evil in the world. So human free will is what we're left with. He gave us the ability to choose. And that means we have the option to choose wrong, which the story in Genesis, of course, about Adam and Eve is, is about exactly that, the way the first two people chose to do wrong, which started the problem that we are still dealing with today. So let's backtrack a little from this. Um, let's let's uh, define what is evil anyway. What? Uh, how do you define evil? Jen, you want to handle that one? 
Sure. Well, I'll start it off. Um, first, I think you have to make a distinction between two different types because we have natural suffering, which is the evils we see, what, such as tsunamis and hurricanes, when people are killed from a natural disaster. And, and then we also have a different kind, such as moral evil, when bad things are done by people. And right. a good definition of this could be undeserved and unnecessary suffering by a sentient being. Right. Of course, in this area, we know all about the natural evil, since we just went through a ratio, a hurricane, a nor'easter. What else have we had? Thunderstorms lately. We've had a little snow. We've had all kinds of what some people would call natural evil lately. And we still have a lot of people in this area, that uh, southern New Jersey, that are still dealing with the effects of Hurricane Sandy, which was about two and a half weeks ago. Many people have lost their homes. They've lost all their belongings. They don't have flood insurance. It's really created a nasty situation. That's the two types of evil, personal evil and natural evil. Okay, with evil being defined, the next question that I would ask anyway is, okay, why do we need religion and a particular Christianity to talk about evil? Can't we just condemn the evil in the world without bringing religion into the discussion? Well, many atheists say exactly this. Could I backtrack a minute, Kirk, on defining evil? We, we defined, uh, Jen defined two types of evil, but really what is evil? If you watch movies a lot, you'll get a whole different ideas of what evil is. If you're a sci-fi channel fan, it seems it's always the flavor of week, what the evil is. They'll have uh, Shark Monster Week. They'll have Alien Monster Week. Um, but us in the real world, we have to really come up with an idea of what evil is in detail. And I like the idea that was put that evil is not, as one religion teaches, an equal and opposite force to good. They teach that uh, good and evil are complementary or opposing forces, like a circle split down the middle, and one is like wrestling with the other for all eternity. Kind of like yin and yang type of thing. Yang, yes, and being in the martial arts, I uh, know of that concept. But the Orthodox Christian belief is that evil is more of a corruption of good. Uh, I think a good example is rust on the car. Now, in a perfect world, your car can exist without rust, but rust cannot exist without the car. <laughs> so, uh, I remember, think of Tolkien. Uh, in Tolkien and his stories of Lord of the Rings, he paints evil as a shadow oftentimes in the sense that uh, as a person, a person can exist without a shadow, but a shadow needs the person to exist. <laughs> so we say that evil needs good, but good does not need evil. So evil is like a parasite, um, really living off of, sucking off of the good, corrupting it to its own selfish end. So I'd say in a more detailed explanation, that's really what evil is, so that we could go on to the next question that you talked about. Okay, why do we need to uh, bring religion into the discussion when we're talking about evil in the world? Can't we just talk about evil on its own? 
Right. Can't we just call evil evil and we don't need somebody, some Christians getting all religious on us? <laughs> we just all know that evil is evil. We can uh, see it. I think of one Supreme Court justice when he went to define pornography, he couldn't give a definition, but supposedly he said, when I see it, I know it. Mm. Well, as apologists and thinkers, we that answer uh, might be very good in application, but we want a more detailed explanation. So I think calling something evil, what it needs is an ultimate reference point. Because eventually you're going to ask, well, what criteria do you use to call something evil? How do you judge something to be evil and something not to be evil? What you need, in essence, and then is a moral measuring stick, something like a reference point. And the illustration that I think is good is you're like in a ship out on the ocean, and it's foggy, and you have no compass. You're going to really have no concept of where north is, where shore is. You're just adrift there without any reference point. So if God does not exist, then... There is no moral absolutes by which to judge right and wrong. More specifically, if God does not exist, then there's no ultimate basis to judge, for example, the crimes of Hitler. You could say, well, you know, if there's nothing that applies in all cultures, in all times, in all ways, then what Hitler does was okay for him, but not okay for me. Or I think of the illustration of in some cultures they hug their neighbors and some cultures they eat your neighbor. <laughs> Do you have a preference? <laughs> well, talking about Hitler, I'm sure that Hitler felt like what he was doing was, if it wasn't necessarily right, it was justified. Like, okay, if I do a little bad stuff here, I'm going to achieve a better result with it. Therefore, I'm justified in doing what I'm doing. Or, he must have thought he was doing the right thing. Or the ends justify the means. Right. That's I like that phrase, not, not liking it, but I mean, I always find that phrase humorous because it's always spoken by the one inflicting the damage instead of the one receiving the damage. Right. <laughs> right. If you're on the receiving end... Uh, it's kind of hard to justify when somebody's uh, pushing you into a gas chamber. <laughs> and I think that's the danger, too, of, of denying this absolute standard is that if society says relativism, then whatever a society says is legal is okay then, just like Hitler, because that's was that was the Nazis' defense, was that they were just following orders. So right. if society defines defines what is moral, then they were doing what their society told them to do. And really, it's, when you think about it, it's kind of hard to make laws if you don't have a common standard. How do you pass laws that say something is right and something is wrong if everybody in your society has a different opinion of that? True. Do you see what I mean? Yes, because in a way, and I know this is a controversial statement, all laws are moral laws. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait a minute. He didn't just say that. Sure I did. Uh, because from the standpoint, morality says this behavior is acceptable and this behavior is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And we even the seatbelt law, the seatbelt law is a moral law, not so much in a religious sense, but yet in a religious sense in the sense that 
You are saying driving without your seatbelt on is not acceptable behavior, and Mr. Policeman is going to give you a little coupon that you can pay the county to show that it is not acceptable behavior. But even really, when you think about that, isn't the reason for seatbelt laws is because we're saying life is valuable. Therefore, we need you to wear a seatbelt to protect your life. If your life isn't valuable, why bother to wear a seatbelt? And I if you get killed in accidents, so what? You're an I. You're a very optimistic person, Kurt, and you're thinking <laughs> that laws should be designed for the good of the person. Yes, but uh, at the risk of uh, getting audited, I would say some laws may not be necessarily for the good of the person, but for the good of the agency that passed the law, as in capital gains tax going up from fifteen percent to twenty-five percent. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like that's good for me. <laughs> but the government would say it's good for them. Uh-huh. But even then, they're saying, well, the reason we're doing this is so we can give more money to more people so more people are better off. Ooh, I see. The, Isn't uh, that how they justify that? The political that? danger light coming on, and I think I'm going to avoid that one. That might be a good idea. <laughs> All right. Any other uh, comments on that? Jen, you had one on the Catch-22 on that one. And I thought that was a pretty good one. Do you remember that one? Um, yes. Well, the atheist who is trying to to deny God's existence by saying all this evil in the world, they're kind of um, they're kind. It's kind of a double standard, and they're caught in a catch twenty two because atheism attempts to disprove God by accusing God of allowing evil things to happen, but by calling something evil, they're assuming that there is an ultimate standard of good, like what we were just talking about. So where does this objective standard of good come from? It has to come from outside of us, a moral lawgiver. So how can you accuse God of violating the ultimate standard that you say doesn't exist? Mm-hmm. That's interesting, because a lot of atheists use that argument to say that God doesn't exist. Well, what about the evil in the world? God can't exist because of all the evil in the world. But if God doesn't exist, they're just why saying are you they don't prefer it. Evil? Mm-hmm. Yeah, then why is anything evil? You know, it, it's it's like you can't have the one without the other. I think that's a very good truth. And C.S. Lewis has a good quote on on that lines. I'll read that real quick. He says, "My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument." depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Mm-hmm. See, I find that C.S. Lewis has a good quote for just about everything. He really does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that, that's really what it comes down to is if God doesn't exist and there's no moral lawgiver, then there's no real standard for right and wrong. Therefore, and I've said this a few times, you get to the point where it's like you can't define anything as either bad or good. It just is. What is is and what isn't isn't. Mm. You know, you, you can't go any further than that. Well, you know, I just crashed my car today and broke my leg. Well, that's not a bad thing. It just happens. It's an accident and it happened and I have to deal with it. But people don't do that. Even the even the atheists that say that try to say, well, there's no real standard of of 
good and evil. And again, this goes back to an example that I remember C.S. Lewis gave in one of his books. He said, well, you take somebody that believes that and when they go to sit down on a bus, you jump in and take their seat in front of them and see if they get mad at you or not and say, oh, you had no right to do that. That was wrong. They almost always will do that. And then you can turn around and say, well, how, how can you say that's wrong? You have no standard. Right. Their moral intuitions come to surface when they're actually the one wronged. They then you see what they really believe. Th- yeah. They don't live what they say. They mm-hmm. say one thing, but they they live as if something else is true, which is generally the Christian standard of right and wrong. But right. then they turn around and say that standard doesn't exist. I find mm-hmm. that interesting. You know, if I take your seat on the bus first, that's not wrong. I'm just quicker than you are. That's all. You know, but they they won't do that. They'll, they won't say, okay, well, great. You're quicker than I am. Too bad. I'll just find another seat. They get ticked off at you. <laughs> okay. So we've really come full circle here, and we're back at the question about God's existence, as in can there be an overriding, applicable to everyone at all times standard of what's right and what's wrong, unless there is a God. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, I think we are just adding a more, maybe possibly, say, intuitive insight into it, because I'm sure most of our readers, most of our listeners will recognize the name Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Mm -hmm. and how they raised the question of evil. Um, but uh, I remember reading from Ravi Zacharias how he responds to that and says, but he thinks it's more complex than that. And the question is, why would he say that? He says, because one must question the questioner. If there's such a thing as evil, you assume there's such a thing as good. If you assume there's such a thing as good, you must assume there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis which to divert differentiate between good and evil, what we were very talking about. If you assume there's such a thing as a moral law, you must postulate a moral law giver. And does God have to exist? Yes, because a moral law giver is needed. But yet, guys like Harris and Dawkins Hitchin want to disprove that aspect, like you said, Kurt, that there's a God. But what I think is important here is you must question that part of it. Why do you actually need a moral law giver if you have a moral law? The answer, I think, is because the questioner and the issue is always an essential part in the sense of value of the person. You can never talk of morality in abstraction. People are implicit to the question and the object of this question. To maybe put it in a nutshell, postulating a moral law without a moral law giver would be the same thing as raising the question of evil without a questioner. You cannot have a moral law unless the moral law itself is intrinsically woven into the personhood. And that demands an intrinsically worthy person. And we say that that person can only be God himself. Okay. So you're... You're, it sounds to me like you're saying that if God doesn't exist, then what you think is right and wrong is just your opinion and nothing else. Well, that's what we were talking about before, and that's yes, but uh, 
guys like Rabbi Zacharias go deeper than that and say it's not just that there is a moral law and hence there has to be a moral law giver. No, he's saying that because of the way that question is formed, it's dependent upon that moral law giver being a person of value instead maybe of a person of just power and says, you will do this and you will do that because I say so. And I've been to some countries in Africa where you can see the effects of that. God is a person of infinite value. So his then moral laws is different. That raises another thought in my mind when people, like for instance, atheists, and I, I read this on the Internet a lot where they'll say, well, I don't need to be a Christian or religious to be good. I can do good things, and I know right from wrong, and I don't need this religion stuff to do that. But if if God really isn't there, then aren't you, as you know, this hypothetical atheist, isn't he really substituting himself for God and saying, okay, I'm the one who's judging what's right and wrong? Since there is no God, I'll make that judgment. Well, I think this is wrong and this is right. But the problem with that is you have another atheist across the street that may think something different is right and wrong. So how do you, you know, reconcile that when you have 50 million different opinions of right and wrong? (laughs) Or maybe worse is you agree that there has to be a moral lawgiver and you substitute what we would say was the true moral lawgiver for another type of moral lawgiver, like, uh, say, a god like Zeus. And, you know, the latest movies they have on uh, the Titans or whatever, you can see that Zeus is capricious and cruel and play favorites. Uh, that's not the type of moral lawgiver I would want. He doesn't seem like much of a god to me either. He seems like just a glorified human being. <laughs> Ooh, that that could be one indicator of whether um, something is valid supernaturally or where something is just mythology, is that mythology tends to just be an exaggeration of our human faults. Right. Like using the Greek gods as an example, or the Roman gods or the Norse gods or any of those, they all seem to be made in the image of human beings. They're all like human beings, only just bigger, stronger, whatever. Right. Dangerously bigger, stronger, too. Right. But morally, they're no better than human beings are. Or worse, because they have the power of power to abuse. And I think, again, saying my travels around the world in many places, the part that grieved me the most was seeing the abuse of power to selfish power over people who had no ability to resist the abuse of a dictator. Uh, like Idi Amin, remember, said he declared himself uh, Presidente for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, a modern example of that might be the president of Iran today. Don't ask me to pronounce his name, <laughs> but he thinks the same thing. He thinks that his whatever he says, that's law, and what I say goes. And the rest of the people in the country have to do that or else you get arrested or executed or whatever. And I think if Keith were here, he'd be tapping on our shoulders right now because Keith emphasizes that Christianity, when done correctly leads to the most liberty and flourishing for a civilization, for individuals. So you would want that type of person in power executing laws, 
bringing about influencing laws is the person who is accountable to a moral God、mm-hmm. instead of only accountable to himself. One of the other things that I like to bring up when people are talking about moral standards is I. I follow the Christian God because I have yet to come up with a better moral standard than the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount. If you can come up with a better standard than that, I'll follow it. So far, I haven't had any takers. Right. When we look at the whole of it, I think sometimes people object because they pull out one or two things instead of.、Uh, Look at it. For example, in my marriage,、uh, the Bible tells me, orders me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That's a pretty tall order, and I can remember many times in the past when I'd be angry at my wife, even though she is a perfect angel. But when I'd be angry at her, it would be almost like I could hear God saying, "How would I treat her?" And like, oh yeah, I'm accountable to that standard, not my anger. Of course, you're saying that has nothing to do with the fact that your wife is sitting in this studio right now, does it? No, none whatsoever. <laughs> I'm not looking for brownie points, so she'll make me brownies. No. <laughs> and I hear she's a good baker. Martha was telling me that today. <laughs> oh yeah, she's really good at that. <laughs> okay. Let's go on to the next question. Okay, we've talked about like、uh, the basically how we would define good and evil. Let's go in another direction. Look at it this way: if if God is all powerful, why couldn't He have made a better world than we live in now, with no evil, no suffering, no tragedies in it? How do we respond to that? I really like that question because just the other day I was watching a debate between Dinesh D'Souza and Bart Ehrman, and that was something he—that was one of his main points that he kept saying. Well, if your God exists, then he did、um, a pretty awful job <laughs> at creating this world because look at all the evil in it. Couldn't he have done a better job if、yep. he is all powerful and all knowing? And I think that that just argument doesn't even take into consideration what the actual what what Christian theology actually says because that is what God created. He created a perfect world, and it was under His jurisdiction and under His law. And He gave man free will the pos the possibility. He created not evil, but the possibility of evil. In order for us to be truly free creatures, we had to have. The choice of whether to live under his jurisdiction or to go our own way and to sin against him, and so now we now because of that now we live in a world where we are affected by by our choice by evil and sin. So yes, there's suffering at this point in time in this world, but not only did he create a perfect world to begin with, but when again when you look at the full spans of Christian theology, this is not the only world, and but in this. During this time, we have the choice of whether we do want to live in that perfect world again under God's rule and under His jurisdiction. And so, what, so what is fifty years of suffering if it's a second in the whole spans of eternity of someone who chooses chooses God and chooses that they want to again live in a world where God, where we are under His rule, where there will be no suffering, where promise there will be no tears and no suffering. So, what is a little second of suffering in this world to an entire span of of bliss? So you're saying, according to the Bible, it tells us that God created the world perfect, and we basically messed it up. Exactly. So you're saying God isn't really responsible for the evil in the world; we are. 
Not at all. It's our, we chose it. We chose, we chose to disobey him and to, to right. not obey his law and to mess it up. Right. Well, then we could get into probably a whole another program about God's justice. I was thinking more like the, that uh, great theological premise called uh, have your cake and eat it too, <laughs> in the sense that we want a world in which God forcibly prevents suffering from happening, yet at the same time we demand our own autonomy, our own free will. Mm-hmm. And that is just contradiction. You can't have both at the same time. Right. So you can't have your cake and eat it too, no matter how good the cake may taste when it's made by my wife. <laughs> <laughs> and and again, we, we're at the 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 same idea of consequences for your actions people say well i want a perfect world but i want to be free to do whatever i want what they're saying is i want to do whatever i want and when it's wrong and it makes a mess i want god to clean the mess up right and take the consequences of my actions away but then what's the point of having free will if every time you do something wrong god removes the consequences of it that's not free will at all right that's true Although I wouldn't mind that once in a while if he would clean some of my messes up, but well, and he does sometimes, doesn't he? Sometimes he does. Yeah. Yes, his yeah. mercies are new every morning. He says. Well, yes, put. and really, that that could be another program about how Jesus Christ came to clean our mess up. Right. So, okay, let's go on to another aspect here. Let's see. Our next topic would be Kevin. Do you want to? Uh, well, actually, Jen, do you want to talk about uh, question number five here about the intellectual and emotional aspects of evil? Sure. I think um, so you're interested in that aspect, aren't you? Yes, I am. Partly because it just affected me recently with someone, a close friend, just this past week who she told me she had cancer. And so it's a girl around my age and she Mm. like around my age has her whole life ahead of her. And now she is battling this. So I think and she was asking me, like, why is God allowing this? So I think it's so easy to rattle off intellectual answers. Well, we know that we have that the reason there's pain, suffering and evil is because of free will because we brought this on ourselves but the emotional aspect i think is when you're actually going through it firsthand Mm -hmm. or someone you love is experiencing it firsthand that's when really how do you respond to the evil that's personally affecting you now that's tough it's it's one thing to talk in the abstract about good and evil but like you say when it gets down to being personal when it's something you're dealing with or somebody you care about is dealing with something, it's like a whole different ball game then. Mm-hmm. And that's when it gets so much more real. Do you trust the promises? Like, God, uh, we weren't promised a life free from, a free from sufferings and from trials, but we know that God does promise there is purpose in, there is purpose in the trials that we go through and that and that good can come out of it. And also he promises to comfort us like none other. Like 
atheism raises this problem of evil, but they really have no solution to it. Christianity does offer hope to the problem. Jesus Christ went through it himself, which is what we were going to talk address a little bit later but god tells us to that we can question him like that's what david did in the book of psalms god why am i going through this lord be near me constantly all throughout scripture people crying out to god and he promises that he's not distant from our pain that he's there to comfort us and isn't that yeah i'm just thinking about all the different uh parts of the bible that deal with that like the the whole book of job is really about that Job went through a lot of suffering, and he felt like he didn't deserve any of it. And that's the whole point of the book. And he questions God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? And the interesting thing I find in the book of Job is when you read it, and God comes down to him in the end and kind of gives a speech to him, but he doesn't answer Job's question directly. He doesn't tell him why the things that happened to him happened to him. All he does is reassert his sovereignty over the universe and that he knows everything and that he created everything and who are you to question me? And at the end of his speech, Job says, I can't answer that. I put my hand over my mouth. Compared to you, I'm insignificant. I know nothing. Right. Isn't that an interesting? God really, I love that whole passage because God just goes on about how he created the world and who are you, Job? Like, don't you know you can trust me by now? Like, (laughs) And uh, we just finished studying in my church the the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament where he does the same thing. His, the Hebrew people were going through some really difficult times and he questioned God about it. He said, why do you? Why is all this evil in the world, and why do you not do anything while all these terrible things are going on? That's the whole theme of the book. And, you know, I'm reading that book, and I'm thinking these are the exact same questions that we ask today. Thousands of years later, we're still asking the same questions. Right. And God's answer is still the same. His answer basically is, I know what I'm doing. Therefore, you need to just trust me and let me take care of things. Right. And that's basically what he told Habakkuk, the same thing that he told Job. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, Jen, like you say, it's it's easy to say these things, but when you get mm-hmm. a diagnosis of cancer or, you know, you're in a car accident and all busted up in the hospital or whatever, then it becomes a whole different thing to look at you know, the problem of pain and suffering and like, why did this happen to me and what's what's the purpose for this? And I think sometimes God can use it to draw us closer to himself as well. C.S. Lewis, I love this quote by him that he wrote in The Problem of Pain. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Doesn't that really make you start thinking about what is life all about when you're going through suffering. If, if you're having a great time and things are just flowing along and things are, are just great, you're not going to sit down and think about, you know, why am I here? What's life about? You know, you just float along. Right. But when something happens to shake your world up, all of a sudden it's like, what's going on here? It you makes you start thinking. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know I, on a personal standpoint, uh, I guess I call myself an egghead, a nerd or whatever, or as my wife says, you think too much. So, 
Many times when I go to difficulties, I try to examine the situation to the millionth degree. Why did this happen? Why did it not happen? What was God doing? What was he showing me? Blah, 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 blah. And while those questions are important, the ultimate purpose that I, the ultimate thing that I should be doing was be seeking him, trusting him, and not relying on getting all the answers. Answers are important, but not making the primary effort is to get an answer to the millionth degree, but literally trusting him through it. And if I do get an answer one day, great. If I'm like Job and I never get an answer on this side of eternity, then I have to trust God that that is uh, something that's good for me, even though it doesn't feel good for me. Or it doesn't seem good right now, but yes, it's not going to last forever, and when it's over, I'll know why I went through that. Right, because the Bible says that all things work together for good. It does not say that all things are good, but God uses them for good. To tell someone who's suffering from cancer that this is a good thing for you is cruel, I think, and very insensitive. Mm -hmm. But to say that God can use good out of it. He can bring good out of evil. Right. You can actually effect some good for others through your own suffering. I mean, that's a very important distinction, but it's, I think, a helpful thing to remember, not only from the standpoint of God, but the standpoint of not insulting the person who's really suffering. Right. Right. You wouldn't want somebody coming to you when you're going through hard times and say, well, you know, God did this to you because it's a good thing and he wants you to go through this. You know, I wouldn't take that too well myself. Which, uh, Jen made an important point this morning in Sunday school, and I think it is that sometimes when these things happen, and as Christian eggheads, we try to give answers to people who have questions, uh, sometimes it isn't necessarily about immediately answering the question as it is maybe listening and being there with the person. Mm-hmm. Comfort them with your presence and not so much with your words. So later on, there might be an opportunity for words. But at the immediate answer, the person doesn't want to hear a nice little slogan. Mm-hmm. They're looking for your presence in their life while they suffer. That's also, uh, uh, we could find an example of what you just said in the book of Job again, where when Job is crying about all the things that he's gone through, he has three of his friends that come and sit with him. And it says that for the first, I don't know how long it was, a few days or a few weeks or whatever, his friends just came and sat with him in silence and just suffered with him. Yeah. And... That was the right response, but where they got into trouble was when after they their mouth. <laughs> yes, after a while, they started trying to answer Job's question about why this happened to him, and that's when they started getting into trouble. That's such right. a good point. I think of the verse, and I can't quote it. Unfortunately, it says, "Even a fool looks smart when he keeps his mouth shut." Right. That's a paraphrase. But. <laughs> mm, Proverbs. I know what you're talking about. Yep. It's a good example for us that, uh, you know, if somebody's hurting, sometimes the best thing you can do for them is just Mm. sit there with them and not say a word. Just 
you know, be there with them. Mm-hmm. And don't try to explain to them why this happened to them because yes. that's just going to make things worse. Yes. Uh, we have another interesting quote here again from C.S. Lewis. Uh, this is from his book, A Grief Observed, which really a lot of what we're talking about here, C.S. Lewis himself went through this very thing. He, he spent many years, well, he started out as an atheist. Then he he started studying the evidence for the Bible and Christianity, and he became a Christian. And I've always remembered a quote in one of his books where he said that the night he realized that Christianity was true, he said, I was one of the most reluctant converts in history. He didn't want to do it, but he got to the point where he was like, this makes so much sense, I can't deny it anymore. And he became this great Christian who wrote dozens of wonderful books about Christian truth and theology and the Bible. But then later in life, he married a woman. I forget how old he was. I I think he was at least in his 50s when he married this woman. And a few years later, she got cancer and died. And then all of a sudden, here he was in this position of the great, you know, quote unquote, spiritual expert. And now he was in the middle of of all this grief and pain himself. And he wrote this book called A Grief Observed, which is basically he sat down and just wrote how he felt about this happening to him. And it's really hard to read it because suddenly all of the theological concepts of right and wrong and good and evil and bad and good were personal to him. And it was a whole different thing. And it just shook him right to the core of his soul. And... It's what he he even said later. He said that he thought that was the most honest book that he ever wrote. And we have a quote here from it where he said, We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, Blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not imagination. Yes. It took him a long time to, to, even though he had all the head knowledge about why this probably happened or, you know, whatever, all the stuff we're talking about right now, he knew all of that. When it became personal to him, it still really shook him up because when you're feeling something yourself, you're in a whole different place. Yeah. That's one of the things I admire about him is that uh, he went through the same things that we go through. And he was honest enough to, to say at this point in his life, he said, you know, all this stuff that I that I know in my head isn't doing me a whole lot of good right now. This still hurts like crazy. And that's the way life is sometimes. But it's interesting at the very end of the book, though, he kind of comes to the same conclusion that Job did. It's like, I don't understand any of this, but I know who God is, and I trust that there is a purpose in this, even though I don't know what it is, and I'm hurting like crazy. God has a purpose, and he came back to his belief in God to get him through it. I think it's important, as sometimes apologists, we have to make sure we explain that there's a difference between contradictory and hard to understand difference between incomprehensible and hard to understand. Some things are just contradictory. God can't prevent all the evil in the world, and yet there still be free will. That's a contradiction. Yet, how does God operate in our life of suffering? Why are some healed and some aren't? 
why do good people suffer and other people don't suffer? Those things are hard to understand. Yep. And so we have to understand that difference to make sure we don't try to blend them all together and come to the incorrect conclusions. Right. Well, we have about four minutes to go. Uh, how would you uh, summarize what we've gone through today? Where, where, what's, well, what's our great answer to the questions we've been asking today, if there is a great answer? Well, real quick off of what Kevin just said last about um, when we don't understand why good people suffer, I think the reason Christianity offers so much, so many answers to this problem of pain is because Jesus was the ultimate good person who suffered. He was perfect, and he and he suffered unjustly. He didn't deserve the cross, but he did. And so no amount of pain and suffering we ever experience here on earth can, can compare with the agony and torture he went through mm-hmm. um, prior to the cross and then as he was on the cross. When I was uh, looking this up, too, interesting fact, our word excruciate actually comes from ex, meaning out of, cruciate, meaning from the cross. So excruciating mm-hmm. pain, that's what Jesus went through on the cross. So God knows exactly the pain we go through and suffering. I think that's an excellent point because as apologists, our goal is not to win the argument per se, but to seek to remove the obstacles, whether intellectual or emotional, to remove or diminish those obstacles so that the person can see Christ in his true beauty and reality and truth and how Christ applies to them. And that, I think, when we talk about evil, I think that's what we've been doing for this last hour, is trying to get the person to see that they can remove that obstacle and really see Jesus in their pain. Right. And I I find uh, that's one of the unique things about Christianity is I don't know of any other religion that talks about a God who came into this world in order to share our own sufferings with us the way Jesus did. Yeah. Usually the gods of other religions are above all of that. They're, you know, way up there somewhere and they're looking down on us like, you know, you poor little wretched creatures, you know, going through all your suffering and all. But Jesus actually came into this world and lived in it and suffered and was tired and was hungry and you know was sweaty and went through everything that we went through and that's that's i think that's a a unique concept in religion certainly in the way it is played out in scripture yes okay well uh we're just about to the end of our program i have one more quote here that i think would be a great way to end this program and this is from the bible it's in the book of john chapter 16 verse 33 where Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, good one. Awesome way to end it. Okay. (laughs) All right. So uh, we thank you all for uh, listening to us today, and thank you, Kevin and Jen, for coming in today and sharing your insights with us. And join us again next week for evidence for faith and always remember the best reason for being a christian is because it's true 